No mai piki mai ki te pūtahi. Welcome to te pūtahi. E This is a dual language program, a collaboration between the Science Media Centre, Te Hiku Media and Ignite Studios. Ko ahau tēnei, ko Kingi Gilbert, he uri ahau no tainui te arawa a me tokomaru waka. Te pūtahi is simply the nexus, the intersection, the meeting point between science research and our haukainga. We explore how the science and research may be useful or not useful for our haukainga. I'd like to introduce our today's special guest and our panellists. Ko tui giling rawa ko tāmako onpi oku hoa kaituku pātai. Kia ora. Kia ora tāmako. Tēnā koutou, me ki ake ko taupiri te maunga, ko waikato te awa, ko tūranga wawai te marae, ko tāmako onspi tōku ingoa. Kia ora. Kia ora tāmako, a tui, kia ora. Tēnā koutou i te iwi, ko tui giling tōku ingoa, ko te whānau a apanui te iwi. A kia ora tui. Ko tā tātou kai kōrero i te rā nei ko Dr. Andrew Spall. Dr. Andrew Spall is with the Statistics Department at the University of Auckland and specialises in genetic and epigenetic epidemiology. Andrew is a founding member of Te Manararaunga, the Māori Data Sovereignty Network, and co-authored the paper Inequalities in the COVID-19 Infection Right. A right. E pēhia ana, Dr. Andrew Spall. Kia ora, Andrew, we'd like to get to know a little bit more about you, your haukainga, uh, your tūranga waiwai, a little bit about your history. So uh, can you give us a little bit of a rundown? No here, koe. I'm a, I'm a Huntley boy. I'm a, a grew up, a born and grew up in Huntley and then moved to Norton and Hamilton. Um, I'm not mana whenua from there. We're Basically, uh, my grandmother was uh, put in an orphanage as a child, and uh, so with, I'm third generation urban Maori. Uh, and uh, so, we've, our whanau have never been Hokainga, um, but our, our marae are uh, up north, Pukapoto, and uh, Wangaihu in Wanganui. Kia ora, Andrew. Oh, Kahuri Terako Kitaku Hoa Tamoko. Kia ora. Tēnā koe, uh, Andrew. Tēnā koe, Whakawātia. Tēnā koe, anomo tēnei hui. I've just got a, um, a quick question just to open our segment here. I'm just wondering with your, your mahi and, uh, you know, I've got some big words there, genetic and epigenetic epidemiology. Can you just explain a bit what that means at the, at the Hokai or the community level? What does that okay. mean to us? Actually, I'm a sociologist. I'm just pretending to do epidemiology because... <laughs> <laughs> but um, now, so epidemiology is just the study of the pat patterns of disease, right? Because diseases are like this one are patterned. You know, they affect certain people and they don't affect other people. So epidemiologist studies those patterns, uh, and a genetic epidemiologist looks at the genetic basis for those patterns. So it's one of the things I dabble in. I'm actually more I tend more to do the social inequality stuff, but the genetic stuff. Uh, is the if you're aware of the Stan Walker program, right? So when a long time ago, because I'm old, right? Um, in the 1990s, it was my honour to set that project up with Stan's grand um, grandfather and his aunties. Um, and yeah, we broke a few few rules to push that walker off, but uh, anyway, we got it done. Um, and yeah, so that's so that's 
kind of genetic epidemiology, there's, there's an illness that has got a genetic base, and by working with both the Fano and the researchers, um, we're, uh, they were able to identify what that gene was and um, change the way that stomach cancer has been treated all around the world. Awesome. Awesome, Andrew. Uh, it sounds like it's a bit of a, a targeted um, kaupapai trying to search out those specific genes um, within our Māori communities, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and for me, you know, that, that's an important um, thing to do, and it's something that we can do really, really well, because doing genetics, what you really need is really good genealogical information. So, and one of the one of the, the successes of that stomach cancer project was the Fano had that nailed, right? So that when we actually um, brought those parties together, and they got a research grant and stuff, and the Fano went away and did their part of the mahi, which was the the um, stuff, and they and they had to sort out who died young and if possible, was it a cancer? And they came up to the to the researcher. Um, and they had three years funding to find this gene because, as you say, it's, it's highly technical, highly specified stuff. They had three years funding to try to find it because they thought it was going to take that long. The researcher looked at the information, the genealogical information that the family brought. He went, bam, this is going to be easy. <laughs> and sure enough, they found it in six months. Right? And they've been looking for this particular gene fault worldwide for years. Wow. Wow. And it was because we actually had our mataranga nailed, right, in, that re in a really solid way, and with the, um, the whanau had the um, people in involved had permission to use and access that, that we were actually able to combine these two bodies of knowledge and actually change cancer outcomes for both that whanau and worldwide. That's awesome. Uh, our kaupapa of Te Putahi is about the nexus between Mātauranga Māori and our Western science, and that's the ultimate mesh of those two things. You've got whakapapa and you've got that genetic tracking. So uh, yeah. awesome to hear that, Kōrero Andrew. Yeah, and, and it couldn't, ha you know, if it was just one side of that, it couldn't happen, right? And we actually had to bring both together, and then, but, but it was a matter of bringing them both together, together in a negotiated way, right? So that there was equal power, equal, um, there was sharing, uh, there was no whakamana mana, excuse the language, but there was, <laughs> it, was a, it was about the kaupapa uh, with the, um, and also the, protecting some information. So the whakapapa information was, you know, only certain people could see it and it couldn't go into certain domains, um, but it still had to be used. Um, and it worked awesomely. In fact, it works so well that that's how that whole program of research still works. Right. And uh, the whānau were still intimately involved. They still have intellectual property rights. They're still involved with every single publication. They go to every meeting. You know, it's fantastic. Awesome. Beautiful foundation for that mahi. Um, that, that's one of my pathway, but I think I'll pass it over to, um, to Tui now. She might, she's got a few pathway brewing over there. Uh, Tui? Tēnākoe, uh, Andrew. I'm probably Sorry. following along on, on similar lines. Um, to the kōrero with tamoko. I know that you've done quite a lot of work around the history of Māori and epidemics. I was just wondering if you have a whakaoro around what um, some of our Māori communities have actually done historically in collecting data, and, and what do you think that would, what, what do you think that could tell us now in, in our everyday lives? Well, the, interestingly, when, when we t when we hear about this current epidemic, we're, we're hearing from experts 
who are collecting data like the Sean Hendys and the, and the Mike Bakers and the Nick Wilsons um, and the Leisha Verrills, you know, and, uh, and they're fantastic people, right? But if you cast your mind back to about 105 years, right, we had an, a smallpox epidemic in this country and the person who was the Mike Baker or Leisha Verrill back then was a dude called Tarangi Heroa, right? So it was Tarangi Heroa, um, otherwise known as Sir Peter Buck, who actually, he was the lead data person. So he was the first, he did the first epidemiological study of any sort in New Zealand, right? And it was actually on the impact of that um, epidemic on Māori and what was what was underlying its the worst impact. Um, and the intention for that was to drive local innovation, right? Um, and interestingly, it came up with the fact that it was crap housing, right? So 105 years later, we're probably, or we're probably going to be coming up with, if, if this epidemic had spread, we'd be probably coming up with the same answer. Epidemiology is just about information, and it, but it's, it's not just about describing something. Epidemiology that just paints a picture of of a disease and how it spreads isn't much use, right? The thing about epidemiology is it's, it's supposed to inform change and it's supposed to stop a disease or stop it spreading. So the idea that we're doing, um, we're, we're collecting information about an epidemic right, is intended to make a difference. And, make it. and one of the problems with previous epidemics, apart from, or even Tarangi Hiro's work, because um, those communities were pohara, you know, they were living in uh, really poor areas, quite often being flax cutters, um, living in really um, living where they could, right? So, um, so they didn't actually have much opportunity for change. But in more recent epidemics, if you look at the 1919 epidemic, the the, um, the uh, 1950s ep ep epidemic, or even the 2009 um, H1N1 flu epidemic, then a lot of that epidemiology was done after the fact. Right, so and they go, oh, this was really unequal, you know, and we go, yeah, yeah, that's us, you know. <laughs> so you tell, we know it affected us really badly. But if you if they'd actually done that epidemiology beforehand, in terms of their prediction or during, so we knew what was going on, we could have actually affected change. And one of my concerns is the current system of doing monitoring disease out of Wellington denies the fact that the effective change in terms of making a difference for Māori doesn't come from Wellington, doesn't come from the terrace, it comes from the Hokainga. And our history teaches us that. You know? um, and whether that means that we have to change our tikanga, if that changes, it's up to the Hokainga to change it. If that means that we actually have to do some interventions about delivering kai, um, sorting out housing, um, sorting out any rudu-rudu that happens, that happens at home. It's not going to come from Wellington. So what I want to see coming out of this epidemic is something that is more aligned to what our forebears did in terms of Rikturangi Hiroa, locally info local information to inform local action rather than just describing an epidemic, expecting a response from Wellington that will actually sort out what's happening at home. Because that that's never worked. In fact, a colleague of mine once said that, you know, waiting for waiting for the cavalry, he happened to be from Tuhoi, he said, waiting for the cavalry to, to arrive from uh, from Wellington, he said, is always a problem because quite often it's, oh, well, it is, no, he said, it always arrives too late and quite often it's not the cavalry that you want, right? Mm. 
Yeah, and so we actually need information to empower local solutions. Um, and yeah, Wellington's only just beginning to get that. And that's what I'm really keen to see support. Oh, kia ora, Andrew. I think I'm going to flick back to Tamoko for his next follow-up question. Yeah, so Andrew. Um, my other part I was, um, what do you hope the outcomes of your your mahi and your research will um, provide or uh, provide for our Hokanga communities, and how will it affect their our everyday lives as Hokanga now, in our in our bubbles and our papakainga and our hapu? Um, yeah, how will your mahi affect uh, the Hokanga? Well, that that most recent piece of work, which was about um, was about how bad this disease would affect our, um, our population, right? And to be perfectly honest, the audience for that wasn't the Hokanga. The audience for that was 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 Wellington and the politicians, right? Who seem to have this historic, his, what Rangi Walker used to describe as historic amnesia, right? yeah. and that they forget about the past and they forget about how bad this would be. So what we did is working with you know what, one of the key teams of, on information about this epidemic, we decided to write a paper saying how bad this could be, just to put the spotlight on Wellington. And we wanted to put the spotlight on Wellington and give them the information so that they could say, you know, doing what you did last time is not good enough. Saying about how unequal the impact is, right after the five years after the fact, isn't good enough. We have an opportunity here to prevent disease, prevent hospitalization and most importantly prevent avoidable deaths and if we're going to do that Wellington needs to realize that a one-size-fits-all policy doesn't work right and we actually need some a, a policy kind of trying to avoid the jargon but a, a policy approach that is um, that lets Hokanga do their own thing and protect their own and that means give them the resources and those resources are also information um, and so that was the, that was the intent, right? Just to tell Wellington, back off your your jobs to realise that this needs to be done differently, right? Some of the other work that we're doing um, is is yet to be fully circulated, but that's looking at how bad this epidemic could be at a local level, and but giving instead of writing an academic paper with some real brain breaking maths, right? Uh, and it, what we've done is we've created an app that anybody can use and it works on a smartphone so you can go, oh, if this epidemic was as bad as they say the 2009 epidemic, what would be the impact in our DHB region? How many Māori would go to hospital right, in what age group? So we've got that finally, I think hopefully, live um, uh, sorted yesterday and we're going to make that freely available and it works on a smartphone. And that means that the decision makers um, wherever they are in, in local communities, um, be they iwi committees or whatever, can actually have the same information as what they have in Wellington. And they can say, no, no, we've got so many, this is the impact in our community. We're gonna maintain our, our checkpoint. We're gonna maintain our lockdown of our oldies. Because one of the points for that is that the message from Wellington was coming through that we needed to look after our over 70 year olds. Everybody needed to look after their over 70 year olds. But in fact, if you look closely and pull out the Maori data, 30% of our deaths would actually be in the 60 to 70 year olds and another 15 in the 50 to 60, right? So if we just protected our just our 70 year olds, right? 
would have would would miss forty five percent of our deaths. Mm. Really good example of one size doesn't fit all doesn't fit all right. But it's hard to protect you know because people are in their in their fifties and sixties are still working you know. And I'm in that age groups too, so I got to be careful. Um, so, um, so we can't tell people just to stay at home. But what that means is, if we let local communities know that this is this is where it could go, they can form local solutions based on local knowledge. How is it about issuing money uh, to the local DHBs to Maori regional facilities, or is it about influencing the way that's distributed through the current system? I'd keep every single bit of putia away from the DHBs. Um, they, because um, DHBs are really resource tight, right? And when if you put add more money into a resource tight organization, it's really hard to make sure it remains targeted. If our history teaches us anything, it's the sustainable and effective responses have been those local responses, right? Um, and the DHB don't have the feet on the ground to do that. Right? So who does? Well, you know, the, the, the league came out of the, out of the social issues of the, of the late, like, sorry, the late 1940s and early 1950s. That is the most enduring social agency that's had an impact on Māori. Nothing else coming out of Wellington has ever got anywhere near cl close to it. It's proven itself as a service deliverer. It's proven itself as a, a um, research agency. It's proven itself as a policy advocate. But its strength is in it in the fact that the roots are all local. Right? And I think that here's an opportunity for to, rather than distribute the money across uh, service delivery agencies that are currently underperforming for Māori, is to actually look at different, right? Who, who's got, and, and we now have Māori public health medicine specialists. We now have Māori um, uh, owned and operated medical and health service practices. We have Māori owned social services practices that are really grounded, that who know who, who the high need people are in their community. They know where the resources are in their community and they can actually make a difference. Interesting, my, my grandmother in the 1930s was involved um, during the Depression with working with uh, Kofokta um, in distributing food. And that was their, their strategy. We were the ones with the local knowledge. Um, and with, you know, Natikofokta were the ones with the local knowledge about who needed, who needed um, labor, who needed kai, um, who needed sorting out. And they were able to actually really resources, including from the Crown, to act locally. Um, yeah, so that would be my approach. We need an approach that reinforces what works rather than reinforces a, a Wellington central approach. Um, I'm just following up, you were talking a lot about new technology and use of technology um, as we move through this new world of COVID. Um, what can you see as the, the benefits and also um, the cons about technology, especially um, given that some of our rural communities and others don't have access to Wi-Fi, et cetera, et cetera. What, 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 what would your response be to that? Well, yeah, again, it's one of these things where, you know, technology is cool, but it, one size doesn't fit all. Like we're, we're, where my sister lives in the far north, um, up their valley, there's a lot of people, some of, it, some of whom are living pretty marginal. There's no Wi-Fi signal up there. There's a 
badly beaten up piece of copper that goes down the valley um, and there will never be Wi-Fi. Right? So the a technology-based approach might work for some people, but if you got whatever approach is adapted, we also have to, um, it has to be aware of its limitations. And I think that's one of the things that these advocates that are you know, for any app or anything like that really don't, don't see, you know, what, um, and don't really under, or aren't really describing yet. So what are the limitations and are those limitations affecting, um, likely to, to result in different impacts on different people? So we know um, up north that uh, not only do we have really bad cell phone reception, but there's uh, a lot of people are really, really poor, right? So, so that expecting people to have a smartphone, right? Even owning one um, with some, enough money on the account to download some data is just unrealistic. And so if you put that through, what it's going to support, right, are the people who are probably less at risk of a bad outcome, right? So you actually, that, if you, that, a technical solution by itself is going to make inequalities worse if it doesn't take account for the fact that not everybody can afford or use that technology for whatever reason. Mm. We have to be really careful about that because, the, the, I mean, bright, shiny toys you know, appeal to people and it's a real quick solution to throw some money at that. But in fact, if that a technology-only solution is going to make inequalities worse. Yeah. And disempower our people as well, because all of that information isn't going to the local communities; it's going to somewhere else. Yeah, Kilda, I wanted to address that. And and uh, government, there's groups now thinking about the next stages of uh, growth, uh, revival. Uh, there's a show talking about uh, rebuilding a nation. If you were sitting on those panels, uh, deep inside the way the uh, plans are going to unfold, what would you be advocating for? What are your top three projects you'd be advocating for right now? Well, the first isn't a project, it's an approach. And that approach would be an equity approach, right? So everything, every pro every decision, every project has to be looked at with an equity lens. How is, how is this going to affect people? And is it going to be, affect people inequitably, you know, in a way that are unequal? And if so, how, how can we account for that and and um, make that uh, inequity go away, right? And just for that. So that would be the first thing. The second project I would have would be something that pumped information into local communities. And that isn't just about providing them with the information that they need for their own action. It's also giving them confidence in the data system, right? Because when, you, when you're mining data and you're sending it down one way, right, and the, and the data traffic's all in one direction, the only information flow is just heading to Wellington or it's heading to some private company, keep doing that long enough and it begins to smell like surveillance, mm. right? And people go, nah, right, this, mm. this sounds, you know, and sounds dodgy. So the idea is that, and people will stop buying into it, right, because they're not getting anything back. So I think the first thing we do is we develop a system that in its first, the first thing it does is give back to the people who are going to be providing the data, right? And that way you build trust, you build confidence, but also you build mechanisms for communication. Um, and the second project that I would develop would be a way of communicating um, or, 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 or supporting the setup of local 
um, response groups, right? Whether they be people who are going to uh, inform local action about tracking a potential out outbreak, or people who are going to look at um, what, are we, what are our needs locally, right? And so we, you'd actually have a, um, the, the idea is that you'd actually be producing a really good and empowered information source locally who could actually be producing information but also act on information locally. So it's it's so that it's quite, it's a little bit different from actually saying I want a cell phone or, or, or we need an app or anything. I'm, I'm more interested in approaches that are sustainable in the long term that aren't reliant on a piece of technology but actually reinforce the strengths and the abilities of a, of a local community, be they urban or rural. Kia ora, there was a discussion last night, um, the owner of Rocket Labs, and he was saying we need to focus on the biggest bit, the biggest components uh, within the New Zealand economy. What are the biggest bits for you right now from your position uh, and looking at the data, understanding Māori, understanding inequality? What are the biggest bits, the, the things to focus on generally? <laughs> Again, it's going to come back to the equity lens because the economy is going to take a hit and we know historically every time there's been a hit, right, in terms of employment, guess who's been first out and last on, right? It's us, right? So the idea is if in, plan in planning to cope with the economic fallout, yes, we do need to focus on the big bits, but one of those big bits is that every, is to realise that every other uh, economic shock has affected us worse and we've always been the last to come out of it. So what can we do about that? Um, and those are impacts have actually been enduring. So the, we, in the timing of the 1980s crash, right? those rangatahi who never moved into work, actually, most of them never actually really got into work, into, into long-term work. So we actually have an opportunity here to prevent a sustained enduring um, economic impact on, on our whanau and particular age groups. So I would focus on getting our people back into, uh, back into work as quickly as possible um, to minimize that economic shock with a particular focus on making sure that the rangatahi who are at that school leaving age, right, they have to be our first priority. Because if, you don't, if we don't get them into a working environment um, within two or three years of leaving school, it's actually really hard to, to get them into a working environment um, later on and will end up, um, th they'll end up struggling for the rest of their careers. Tamoko, we were discussing uh, resilience and in particular uh, the, the, the strain on, on our communities to be resilient. And I'm just wondering if you had any whakaro, uh from your lens of uh, Pipiriki a papatuanuku, and uh, how that may help uh, inform some of our hokainga out there, and also how uh, would be relevant to uh, our kopapa here today. So yeah, tenakoe kingi is a bit of context. Uh, it's one of the kopapa that myself and my partner Waimeridangi are involved, and it's about um, making decisions in your everyday life to minimise your impact on the taiao. But I think the similarities there is it's, it's those local solutions. Eh? We don't want to wait for someone else, the government, to solve all of the issues on our tile and clean all our waterways and all of that. We want to 
um, have those discussions at that top level, but have action at the Hokanga level. Um, so, like like what your mahi, Andrew, with the your report and your research is informing government to make change to empower Hokanga action. And so the mahi we're doing is that trying to get Fano um, taking action at that Hokanga level, taking um, you know empowering action. Mana motu hake meki. Um, but it's, it is part, you've got to meet halfway, eh? So mm. that, that, it's cool. And I like the call you said about uh, the, the data, me tawutu, it's reciprocal. You know, I'm giving out something. Of, of all of us, Māori communities are giving, there should be some reciprocity in, in, in that concept. So now this, um, I think the local actions is what's what I'm hearing from your, your mahi and what's kind of resonating in the kaupapa that we do. So. Mm. Taking action in, at a whānau level, at a hokainga level, is more, as important as that system-wide change, that equitable change we need. Um, I had a question. We're talking about local actions, but I'm also, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about local capability, your expertise is in uh, treaty areas. If a, a group of iwi hasn't yet been through the process of settlement, what it, what it, and uh, Tefana Apanui, I believe, is currently working through that. What is their realistic expectation of our hokainga who haven't been through a treaty settlement process? And what obligation, while that is still being undertaken, is relying on the government? Also, Dr. Andrew, if you have thoughts on that too, please. No, my. Um, obviously, capacity and capability is a huge thing for, a, for a iwi or hapu iwi who haven't reached a treaty settlement yet because they can't, they don't have access to the resources that are needed to have that conversation with government. And But I think it's also about um, our hokainga deciding what their priorities are and actually having that conversation. Um, however, I think that's quite a hard thing to do in a pre-settled environment. I think as, as time moves on and entities get established, et cetera, that is, that might be an easier um, route to go down. However, having said that, I just really think um, as uh, um, hapu and we need to have really good, uh, maybe it's a kind of COVID community plan or a data action plan that they can actually do practically um, from the outset, um, because actually the strength really is, it is actually all about the people and it's actually also about the strength of the people on the ground and actually trying to find avenues and ways of sharing expertise with people like Andrew um, of ways of collaborative ways that they can actually work together to actually have the best um, outcome for the hokainga. Yeah. So yeah, kia ora. Kia ora. Yeah, and, and part of that is doing what what you can with what you've got. So to uh, Upukareri and um, just out of a portiki, I mean that that pre-settlement um, they haven't got much in the way of resources, um, but they're staunch, right? And they and they set up um, checkpoints, you know. Um, collecting their own data and stuff might be a bit of a burden, um, but they did what they could, you know. Uh, it's also a really good opportunity for um, collaboration between between iwi. Like uh, those, uh, you know, most of us fuck a puppet to multiple iwi. In fact, I, you know, when I work with he used to describe himself as Mata Waka, right? So, and those people who are 
um, with foots in multiple camps might be a really good way of actually transferring skills or resources, or even just to like, here's an approach that we've tried over here, but you know, can you fellas, would this be useful? Could you, could you adapt it, but you know, to your own need, but you know, rather than starting from scratch. And I think a way of actually sharing that kind of level of knowledge rather than each uh, iwi or hapu um, or hokainga organization developing their everything from scratch, having a way of sharing stuff um, and sharing successful approaches would be really useful. And realizing that, no, it may not work but it, um, in a different rohe, but there might be some stuff there that we could adapt or, or learn from. Ko tato. we've reached the end of our segment. Ngā mihi nui Dr. Andrew Spall mō tō kōrero mō tēnei hōtaka tuatahi o te pūtahi. We've covered some very interesting background in epidemiology and we've discussed many ways about making how this uh, science may be useful for our hokainga. It seems critical that the transfer of knowledge between our hokainga is established with our central government in an equitable manner. Dr. Andrew Spall, tēnā koe. Uh, Tamoko, have you got any fakatoki for us to wrap up our, our program today? Yeah, just say fakatoki poto tene hey awa fakakopani nga korero to a uh fakarapo poto hoki um no toku tupuna ate puya hirani. She was quite um you know, she was a po in the time of the, the influenza for our uh, Waikato people. And one of her saying one of her fakatoki we mahi ate mahi hey painga moti um do the mahi for the betterment of all the people and um there's a lot of synerg uh, uh, synergies between that data gathering eh? because you're gathering the data what's happening across the iwi and if that can influence what mahi we do then oh, you're embodying uh, that whakatauki there so tēnā koe, tēnā tātou. thank you we've come to the end of our first program Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next time. Hey, Konara. Mm -hmm.